Thanks for downloading Development Drums number 24. My name is Owen Bader in Addis Ababa, and today's episode is about the bottom billion poorest people in the world. We'll be talking about new research about where they live and discuss what this might mean for aid and development policy. We've got two great guests today. The first is Claire Malamid, the head of the Growth and Equity Programme at the Overseas Development Institute in London. Claire, welcome to Development Drums. Thank you. Nice to be here. And my second guest is Andy Sumner, an economist at the Institute for Development Studies who works on issues of poverty and inequality. Andy, welcome to Development Drums. Hello. Andy, you've been in the news lately for your new paper, Global Poverty and the New Bottom Billion. And I'll put a link to the paper on the Development Drums website so that listeners can read it for themselves. But I wonder if you can start us off with a brief summary of what you found. Sure. Um, we were looking at poverty trends over the last 20 years. We wanted to know uh, where the poor people live and has it changed over the last 20 years. We found three things. The first is uh, that there's now about a billion poor people living in middle-income countries uh, and about 72% of the world's poor. Uh, and only 28% of the world's poor are living in poor countries, meaning low-income countries. We also found that this had changed uh, drastically on the, the picture of 1990 when 93% of the world's poor lived in low-income countries. And finally, we also found that, perhaps surprisingly, uh, there's only about uh, uh, one in four of the world's poor living in fragile states, uh, which is much less than uh, I think perhaps uh, commonly thought. Uh, and actually, uh, Collier's bottom billion uh, actually accounts for only about, a, about 27% of the world's poor. So let's come to Paul Collier's bottom billion in just a second. But let's first make sure that we are defining for listeners what we mean by middle income countries and what we mean by low income countries. Because this is a rather striking finding that such a high proportion of the world's poor live in middle income countries. Yes. Uh, the, the World Bank defines the threshold as uh, $995. Uh, which, if you divide by 365 in terms of the number of days in a year, gives you a, a nominal average income of, of $2.70, which is above the, the higher uh, international poverty line. So what we're saying is that a, a country is defined as middle income if the average income per head in that country is above $2.70 per person per day. The World Bank's definition is uh, $995 a year. Uh, what I've done is divide that through by the number of days in a year to show, in, nominally at least, there ought to be no poor people in those countries. The World Bank developed a methodology for the thresholds back in the 1970s, which is a, it, it's a little bit of a mystery exactly what, what it was at the beginning. And we've certainly tried to get hold of the original formula. Uh, it has something to do with uh, per capita income and, and, and human development outcomes in the early 70s. But what the World Bank has done every year since uh, has um, inflated the line by international inflation. And your finding is that 61% of the world's poor live in stable middle-income countries like Indone Indonesia and India. And then another 11% of the world's poor live in middle-income countries that are classified as fragile, like Nigeria or Pakistan. Is that right? That's correct. So, so this is a big change since the 1990 statistics. Uh, in the past, we said that uh, most of the world's poor, the vast majority, lived in low-income countries. We're now saying that nearly three-quarters live in middle-income countries. That presumably isn't because the poor have moved, the location of poverty has moved, but because the classification of those countries 
has changed. So India was a low-income country and is now classified as middle-income. Is that right? That's correct. Poor people haven't moved, but the countries that poor people live in have got better off. And it seems that poverty hasn't fallen anywhere near as, as drastically as one would hope with 20 years of growth. Claire, you work on growth and equity. Does the fact that the majority of the world's poor live in middle-income countries tell us that economic growth is not the solution to poverty? No, I think economic growth remains absolutely central to poverty reduction. But I think that tells us a bit about how economic growth has been happening. And it just means that we have to pay a little bit more attention to making economic growth solve poverty rather than just sitting back and hoping that it will. But what we're saying then is that if we're concerned about poverty in these middle income countries, these are countries that have enough resources in the country as a whole to tackle poverty. Um, but because of the policies they've pursued or the way that growth has happened in those countries, um, poverty hasn't been reduced as fast as we would like. Look, the question is, is this any of our business? I mean, if, if a country chooses to have a political system in which um, there is quite a high level of inequality, um, but could afford to, to tackle poverty if it wanted to, is that something that um, uh, Westerners have any business getting involved in? Well, there's a number of different parts to that question. I mean, first of all, um, just because a country is middle income doesn't necessarily mean that it has enough resources to end poverty kind of there and then. Martin Revalian at the World Bank has done some number crunching on this and um, under some admittedly quite restrictive assumptions, he has tried to work out whether it is it would be possible to just simply redistribute income in some of the middle-income countries and end poverty that way. And in a country like India, um, he finds that actually, as I say, given his assumptions, that wouldn't be possible just because India has, you know, on average, it's a middle-income country, but what it has is a very few very, very rich people and a vast number of very poor people. So actually, the capacity for just snapping your fingers and ending poverty through redistribution isn't necessarily there just because a country is a middle-income country. Andy, if, what's your view? If, if, if a country um, had enough money to tackle poverty but doesn't because of the domestic political situation there, um, does that, in your view, give us less reason to think that that's an international problem that other people should tackle? Um. <clears throat> Well, I think, I mean, what, what the data says to me is that uh, uh, there's a lot of countries who now have substantial resources, but they're not enough to, to end poverty. And it seems to make the case, or we need to make the case, that uh, a greater attention to inequality is actually good for everyone. Uh, and so if you paid more attention to inequality, you could reduce poverty, uh, reduce poverty uh, faster and cheaper uh, because you shift the initial inequality point uh, and thus speed up the effectiveness of growth that, that Claire referred to. And Claire, presumably that's also your view, that it isn't just a question of the resources. It's also a question of us helping to build the political will uh, and build the the institutions and so on in a society that enables them to tackle inequality. Is that right? Absolutely. And I mean, I think the, the difficulty is that all these things are so mass hugely sort of intertwined that clearly, you know, the, the more income people have and the more likely they are to get involved in you know in different sort of organizations and the more time and energy they will have for becoming politically active and so on i mean i think one of the things that perhaps we think about less in development because we're focused on the very poor is also the role of the middle class and how 
you know, in countries sometimes where you have extreme, very high inequality, what you get is a sort of hollowing out of the middle. And it's often the middle class who are actually driving the kind of political reforms and the economic reforms that that in the end reduce inequality for everybody. Now, it used to be said when I uh, was a student that there was there was something called the Kuznets curve, the the idea that there's a trajectory from um, uh, in very poor countries, quite a lot of equality, you know, in a highly agrarian society, everybody's poor. That the countries then go through a phase of inequality, the kind of Brazil uh, moment, and then as they become richer, they find that um, tackling inequality is also uh, something that they want as a prosperous society, and then they become Scandinavia. Is that still uh, is that still what people think? Yeah, the, the, I mean, the Kuznets curve was originally based on a very small number of countries. Uh, and as larger data sets became available in the 80s, it was, first of all, empirically uh, uh, tested and proved. But then more recently, when there's been better quality inequality data, uh, particularly in the sort of late 90s, and early 2000s, the Kuznets curve was largely thrown out uh, as a generalized pattern. Now, it, it may exist in, in some countries, but as a generalized pattern, it doesn't exist. And perhaps what we ought to be asking is why does it exist in some countries and not others? Uh, and maybe <clears throat> maybe there's actually an inequality trap whereby if growth increases inequality at the outset of economic development, it may actually create governance problems, inequality, uh, poor translation of growth into poverty reduction outcomes. And maybe we need to look at why is it that some countries are very successful at reducing poverty and at the same level of, of per capita income growth, other countries are, are really do, do, do much worse worse why is that is something we need to look at initial inequality is one thing that's been suggested there there are many others we could talk about oh so that's an interesting idea so what you're saying is that if a country starts off on an unequal growth path that will tend to reinforce itself because for example elites will capture not only wealth but then more political power and then they'll continue to uh, manage the society in an unequal way but if it starts off on a on a more uh, equal growth path, then it will tend to uh, it'll tend not to fall into the Kuznets curve problem. Is that is that? A f- uh, I think that's right, and I think uh, what what worries me a little bit is um, a number of the the new middle income countries have achieved higher per capita incomes uh, at the same time at the same time as rising inequality. And what this means is countries are going to have to grow faster and faster and it, it, it just to achieve the same level of poverty reduction. And in doing so, of course, uh, emit uh, substantial greenhouse gases, uh, uh, middle-income countries' uh, emissions per capita are growing. So there's actually a sort of, uh, I'm not sure if spillover is the right effect, but there's a link up with sort of climate change looking ahead. But more generally, there's a sense that um, do we really want countries to have to grow faster and faster and faster just to achieve the same level level of poverty reduction might it be in everyone's interest to have a some kind of serene debate about inequality uh and just look at how uh by by dealing with initial inequality we can actually uh speed up the end of world poverty uh and actually probably do it in a cheaper rate over the long run because it would be less you know less cost on the aid budget etc if you look at the figures on china which is you know in the end what drives a lot of this um it's very striking that in china um the most rapid reduction in poverty happened in the sort of first half of the 1980s when inequality was pretty much static and since then inequality has risen very fast and you now get half as much poverty reduction per percentage rate of growth in China as you did 20 years ago so for those remaining you know 
sort of millions and millions of poor people in China, they're becoming harder and harder to reach with economic growth. It's becoming less and less effective at reducing poverty in that country. Can we um, uh, go to the comparison with Paul Collier's bottom billion? Because, Andy, your paper is saying that there is there are nearly a billion people uh, living in middle-income countries who are below the poverty line. Um, now, that's a different sense of a bottom billion than uh, Paul Collier's bottom billion, because what Paul Collier was talking about was the billion people who live in the poorest countries in the world. Where, so some of Paul Collier's bottom billion are not themselves poor. They're just in a country that is poor, whereas you're talking about where, where the, the billion poorest people in the world are. Is that, is that right? Do you want to explain a bit more about the difference between your approach and Paul Collier's approach? Sure. Paul's uh, well known for his uh, Bottom Billion uh, book that was published in 2007. Um, it talks about a billion people living in the 58 uh, poorest countries by which he means low growth and fragile states and he lists those countries in the back of his uh, second book war guns and votes um, now he's talking about people not poor people in those countries uh, and if you look at more recent data a number of those countries are actually moving towards or have achievement income status not all of them but some of them uh, some of them are no longer fragile states um, and actually about 70 percent of the world's poor aren't in collier's uh, 58 countries uh, and so I mean, his line is that um, if, a, if, if a poor person is living in a, a country with growth and good governance, then there's nothing to worry about. Uh, he actually said in 20 years time, there'll be no poor people in India. Maybe some of the poor people in middle income countries are just as trapped as poor people in, in, in fragile states low in, and low income countries. I mean, I, if you take the example of, say, a, a lower caste woman in one of India's poorest states, um, I wonder whether she's just as trapped as someone in, in one of Collier's countries. Um, Collier clearly has uh, a kind of uh, the ethical e ethically easier ground in the sense that it, we have to help the poorest countries uh, and support those countries. Where I think it's, uh, as you alluded to earlier, a sort of uh, a more complex discussion to be had between traditional donors and middle-income countries is what about the poor, this billion poor people living in middle-income countries? But there, there is something compelling about Collier's point that these countries themselves are in a series of poverty traps that he talks about in the in the bottom billion: conflict traps, natural resource traps, governance traps. That means that without quite deep and sustained and broad. Um, engagement from the rest of the world, those countries uh, are unlikely to get themselves onto a growth path. I mean, that's his argument. Whereas it does seem plausible, doesn't it, that the vast majority of the people living in, say, China or India or Indonesia or other middle-income countries today who are today poor are, are much less likely to... I mean, as you say, there'll be marginalized people in those countries because of the caste system or because of geographical uh, variation or something. But um, uh, most of those people who are currently poor in middle income countries that are on a growth path are unlikely to be poor in uh, one or two decades time. Is that is, is that not a compelling point? Uh, well, I think, first of all, uh, 
there's only 39 low-income countries remaining uh, and actually surprisingly uh, uh, surprising a small proportion of the world's poor only about 12% of the world's poor live in low-income fragile states uh, I think the the emergence of a a new group of countries that's middle income and fragile where there's substantial domestic resources, but the, the state for whatever reason uh, is, is unable to deliver. I think there's, there's question marks there. Uh, I'd also say that I, it worries me actually, if you think of a lot of middle income countries that have had 20 years of growth uh, and in, in a number of them, poverty has remained largely static in terms of millions of poor people um, rather than drastically falling. Uh, I think this comes back to Claire's point about it's not a question of just leaving growth to do its thing. Maybe we need to intervene. Maybe we need to sort of think about uh, building the assets of the poor, not only economically uh, in terms of uh, you think of the causes of poverty around landlessness, but also uh, politically. How is it that uh, poor people are more likely to have voice in their government uh, and, and interact with the governance structures? So while I, while I think Collier's overall narrative um, is in some ways compelling i think it's also it, it misses out or kind of assumes that a lot of poor people are going to be okay and we don't need to worry about them and and that sort of for me raises a few question marks um i think it's also it's not quite clear what his evidence is that somehow we can intervene in low-income fragile states and achieve very much one of the things about middle-income countries is by building uh, some kind of new multilateralism between donors uh, and middle-income countries, um, a number of the, the countries that, that aren't fragile middle-income countries, you can actually achieve poverty reduction uh, perhaps more effectively. So that's not to say Collier's thesis doesn't matter. I just think there's a, a more complicated, broader debate. I think it also, I think really the debate hinges on what you think the question is. I mean, if the question is where should the big traditional donors concentrate their aid resources, then arguably, you know, looking at the sort of Paul Collier's dual focus of countries and people is an appropriate way to do it. But if the question is, how do you end poverty, then it seems impossible. You can't possibly answer that question without paying quite a lot of attention to the countries where most of the poor people live. That's not to say the answer to that question is one that's going to be only provided by the traditional donors. You have to look also to the governments of those countries for part of the answer. But if that's the question you're asking, then looking in the main, the countries where most of the poor people live seems to be a good start. So uh, that's a helpful distinction, and let's explore that a bit. There's a, a difference between aid policy and where traditional donors should be spending their money and on what kinds of programs, and then the broader question of what uh, a development policy and a development strategy and, and Andy's talk of a, a new multilateral partnership. Let's, let's um, pause on the first one of those. To what extent... Uh, Claire, do you think that Andy's research on on where the poor people are um, should guide aid allocation? Does this mean that, for example, that the British government or uh, other large traditional donors should be giving a lot of aid to China and India and uh, Nigeria and other places where there are a lot of poor people? Or do you think this uh, really isn't about the way that those traditional donors allocate aid? I think that when you're thinking about aid, there needs to be two criteria that you're or more than certainly more than one criteria of just where poor people live that you think about when you're choosing how to allocate aid. It's partly where poor people live, but it's also partly about whether the extra resources of aid can actually do any meaningful good in that country. And I think, you know, 
it's certainly questionable to say the least whether um, the extra resources that the UK government could provide in the form of aid would make any difference at all in China. It's a drop in the ocean of China's own um, domestic resources. So I think certainly there's a question about aid. I mean, there's all kinds of different aid isn't just one amorphous thing. You know, there are all different kinds of aid instruments and modalities and there are good examples of sort of small amounts of well-directed aid given to the right people at the right time being able to have quite a big multiplier effect um, in countries like India, for example. So I think there are certainly reasons why some types of aid might be part of the solution to poverty in middle-income countries, but it certainly the large the large volumes of aid that you know we associate with with giving to African countries are unlikely to be the point really in middle income countries and is that also your view i mean this is essentially Claire is saying there that we don't we should break the link which is um explicit in both the uh, UK's aid allocation model and the World Bank aid allocation model between where the poor people are and which countries should receive aid. Is that a conclusion that you're comfortable with? Um, I mean, like Claire, as Claire said, I'd suggest we need to think about a broader range of instruments. Uh, resources are important uh, in low-income countries. Um, other interventions uh, supporting peace and, and, and stability in fragile states and post-conflict countries. I think in, in middle-income countries, um, there's a range of things. I mean, there's the, the kind of do-no-harm agenda, which might be part of a, a new multilateralism, uh, which is basically about um, aid beyond ODA. Uh, so we think about the kind of things that the North could do to support the South on uh, remittances and migration policy, trade preferences, climate negotiations, climate finance, uh, dealing with tax havens, those kind of things. But where, where ODA uh, might be uh, appropriate is, um, is particularly thinking in a more, again, in a more multilateral way. Uh, there are still a lot of poor people in India. Maybe it makes more sense for British aid to be channeled through UNICEF uh, and in those kind of environments or into uh, global public goods, uh, which might include things like a, a global fund for cash transfers to, to direct to poor people. Um, or maybe, maybe aid is going to take a, a more overtly political line um, and um, aid may move towards, as it kind of quietly is, uh, supporting civil society, media, indigenous pro-poor coalitions who are trying to, to, to lead a, a, a domestic push for genuine change. Yeah. So I, I think it's clear and we should come to this that there are a lot of non-aid policies that we should be thinking about in terms of reducing poverty in middle income countries. But with respect, you're both um, slightly avoiding my question. Um, a number of donors, including the World Bank and, and the UK, first allocate aid across countries and then decide with that aid um, that they've allocated to each country what the best instrument and modality is in that country. And the current formula includes a combination of mainly poverty and uh, adjusted for governance. Um, that's, that's what determines aid allocation of, of uh, the UK, the World Bank and the multilateral development banks. Now, at the moment, the aid allocation to India that the UK gives is capped. That, that What the model tells the UK it ought to be giving to India is much more than the UK is actually willing to give to India. 
So um, take uh, agreeing that uh, you need to choose your modality and you should be supported, thinking about supporting civil society and looking for um, those kinds of catalytic interventions that help reduce inequality. Nonetheless, it seems to me you're both saying that an aid allocation model that starts with where the poverty is, is not the right model for allocating your aid. Um, that because we would end up giving a lot of money to middle-income countries. And I think I've heard you both just say that giving more aid to those countries is not likely to be the answer to poverty in those countries. Have I, am I misrepresenting you? Or do you want to make the case for saying that we should continue to link aid to poverty numbers uh, in aid allocation models? I think that's a fair summary. I mean, I think that there has to be, I mean, giving aid is never going to be a perfect science. There's going to be, there has to be a certain amount of sort of, you know, adjustment of any model for political circumstances, for public opinion, um, for different things. I think it's wrong to think that any formula is going to give the exact answer. But I think that a formula which which includes as two of its main criteria um, where people live and where poor people are and the type of countries in which they live seem adjusted, you know, with a hefty dose of sort of pragmatism and realism and public opinion seems to me to be the kind of most likely best outcome, you know, best way of doing it for now. But I think, I mean, I have a sort of double way of looking at this in a sense. I mean, I think thinking about where we're at now, that seems to be the best kind of solution, the best response to the, the, you know to about where poor people live but i think there would be better other ways of organizing aid um if aid was sort of broadened out from its current very narrow idea of odor traditional donors and and so on to a much more sense of a sort of multilateral provision of resources to end poverty globally, which would include some of the middle income countries themselves. So you could imagine, you know, for example, if there was a kind of global commitment to say, you know, that everybody should have a certain level of minimum income. And in India, the way of doing that was for the international community to provide a certain proportion and for the Indian government to provide a certain proportion of resources then one could see that would that kind of commitment could be a reason for governments to rethink quite radically their aid allocations but in the absence of that kind of fairly utopian change in in aid altogether I think the current you know system which we have to admit is something of a fudge is probably the best we're going to get. Andy is that also your view? It seems to me Claire is saying that we should be allocating aid broadly in proportion to poverty suitably adjusted for things like political commitment and so on. Um, it used to be said that it was a complaint of um, progressive thinkers that so little aid goes to low-income countries. Only 39% of official aid, as measured by the OECD, goes to low-income countries. And we used to say that was a disgrace. But on your numbers, that's too much, actually. We shouldn't be spend we should be taking money away from low income countries and putting them into middle income countries. Um so uh, are you uh, is that that's your view, is it? That that um given where the poverty is, uh that more of the aid should be going to middle income countries. Um or do you think that we ought to break the link between where the poverty is and uh how we allocate aid? I think um uh, what we have to look at is what domestic resources are available in each context and what can aid achieve in each context. 
context uh, and by working multilaterally, particularly at an international level, it may well be that in middle income countries, it's not about uh, sort of bilateral programming. It's about some kind of international commitment with, with shared contributions and, and, and shared uh, resources to 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 reduce poverty in middle-income countries, whereas in low-income countries, it's unequivocally about resources. Uh, um, so I don't know if this is a fudge, but I'm sort of suggesting you can do both uh, by supplementing existing uh, aid resources with uh, aid from uh, from middle-income countries. Aid from middle-income countries, so either their own resources or aid between middle-income countries themselves. Yeah, their, their own resources. I mean, the, the flip side of this, of course, is um, China and India have their own overseas aid programs um and so what i think what we really need is uh, some kind of uh, as claire mentioned uh, what would it look like to have a a global mechanism uh, for shared responsibility where resources come both from middle-income countries and from the traditional donors with the overall objective of uh, reducing poverty in those countries and in low-income countries maybe it is still about uh, bilateral and, and, and multilateral program at, at that at the country level um so it suggests in the run up to uh, uh, South Korea and, and next year and, and also the kind of post MGG discussions, we need quite a substantial rethink of aid. And particularly what, what is aid for exactly? I mean, it's, it's I mean, you've written yourself about the, the, the contradictions between short run and long run goals. Uh, and I think it may well be that a bit of GDP growth and a few kids in school may not fundamentally change, uh, you know, change a society. So it builds the tax base. And as Claire talked about, expanding the middle classes and changing the government structures. Maybe we not need to sort of having a debate about what is aid for. And maybe maybe it could be about something far more catalytic uh, in terms of uh, societal transformation. So uh, I should explain to listeners that South Korea next year is the there's a meeting in Busan in 2011 uh, to, to to discuss aid effectiveness. This follows on from the Paris meeting in 2005 and the Accra meeting in 2008. And the, the, there's a lot of discussion in the international system about um, what does effective aid look like and have the Paris and Accra declarations on aid effectiveness brought about the kind of change that we want to see in the aid system. I want to push back on either of you, Claire or Andy, on this question of using aid catalytically to change social and economic structures and catalyze uh, growth. I mean, I, I worry that we have overclaimed what we can do with aid. I see aid working every day to send kids to school or uh, prevent children from dying of avoidable diseases or, or to give people access to clean water. I am not, I haven't seen much evidence of aid really changing other people's countries, changing the political and cultural uh, environment in those countries and putting them on a path to economic development. Now, I'm okay with that. I think that giving, uh, giving people uh, um, a schooling um, while their country is developing around them is, a, is an extremely good use of a, a rather a small amount of money from rich countries. Um, so I, I, I worry that by claiming that we can use aid to bring about this kind of economic and political transformation, we condemn ourselves to failure, that we're, we're, we're offering to do something with the aid budget that we can't actually achieve um, or we don't know that we can achieve, whereas we do know that we can feed people and that we can give them access to clean water or to health care. So do we, do we want to go down the path of saying that we should be um, using aid more to catalyse political and economic change or are we happy to be more modest um, uh, in terms of what we think aid is about? I mean, I think largely I agree with you about that, but with maybe a couple of caveats. I mean, I think, first of all, that sort of traditional aid which feeds people and educates people, you know, I'd agree is 
should be the main purpose of Aiden is probably where aid has been most effective. But I think even in there, there are still choices which can nudge outcomes in different directions. So, for example, you know, one of the critiques of the impact of the MDGs has been that it's led to a massive emphasis on primary education, which is great, but sort of de-emphasise secondary education, infrastructure development, some of the things that perhaps are more directly linked to faster economic growth. So I think even if you say no aid is really just about sort of providing certain sort of services to poor people in the immediate term, there are still choices to be made there which can at the margin affect economic outcomes. Um, but I think, you know, I do agree with you about this issue of whether aid can necessarily can um, lead to... Can I just... Okay, go on, you add. Um, I was just going to say I wanted to raise the issue of, of domestic tax systems. Um, I, I mean, I, there was one report that a, a dollar of investment in building domestic tax systems actually brings back $10 in uh, domestic taxation. I think there's an issue... Uh, I, I totally agree with what you're saying, Owen, about... Um, you know, getting kids into school and immunised are, are very important things. I just wonder if there's also some way that, I mean, ultimately aid is somehow about sometime in the future emancipation from aid. Uh, and I wonder what the kind of trajectory or strategy is. Um, I mean, I saw I saw Dan B. Samoyo speak uh, uh, last week and I don't agree with with much of what she says. But I thought there was an interesting point. She was, if you dig dig into her thesis and try and figure out uh, what you can get a handle on, one issue which she was raising that's that, that that aid without any end point is actually detrimental to government structures. Uh, and maybe if aid was about emancipation at some point in the future, um, that would involve building tax systems, uh, um, business and enterprise policy for the private sector, particularly small all and medium-sized enterprises. It might mean accelerating urbanisation and the movement out of agriculture. I don't know. Um, so I just think there's, there's, there's ways of helping people uh, through the aid programme, but maybe in addition to doing that, trying to think more long-term as well. But I still think it depends. I still think that the role of aid in any of that is much less than you know, we might think it is. I think, you know, even with the example of tax, sure, if you already have a government which is committed to developing a tax system, if you already have a kind of formal sector, you know, extent of sort of formal sector um, private activity which gives you a tax base and so on, then aid can kind of give you a little push at the margin to, you know, improving your data collection and setting up good institutions. But in a different country, aid couldn't achieve that role. It's still much more about the circumstances of the country. And aid is, you know, really doesn't have very much effect on that. So I think we need to be very cautious about, you know, claiming too much for aid. And I think that goes double for the kind of more, the bigger political and social changes. I mean, although I think absolutely those are the thing that those are the things that are needed and you know more political participation for more people a more redistributive tax system and so on are absolutely at the heart of development i still feel quite uncomfortable about us claiming a role for aid and by extension for um the big aid donors in bringing that about you know that just does seem quite <coughs> you know, uncomfortable, a sort of uncomfortable level of, of outsiders intervening in other societies, which doesn't have a very good track record. 
So let's let's look at what are the non-aid policies that um, both might be effective and which uh, have legitimacy. Picking up Claire's point about you know to what extent this external involvement in in political and social change is is valid and effective. Um, are there things in the non-aid space that are quite likely to both accelerate economic growth but also to help those societies grow in a more equitable way and have more accountable political institutions? Um, uh, I mean, what things clearly trade policy comes to mind as something that can affect poor countries' economic development, although it's not. A, I've not seen any analysis of what kinds of um, rich world trade policies will change inequality in in developing countries. But there are other things like um, rights advocacy, um, creating international norms, those kinds of things that you could imagine might affect uh, some of these changes in developing countries. Um, uh, Claire, what, do, what, what if if aid? If you're not, you're I think saying that aid uh, doesn't look like our, our most valuable lever in the fight to try to reduce inequality in developing countries. So what do you think we should be looking at? I think that what international policies can do is just to kind of extend the range of opportunities available to those governments who want to do something about inequality, for example. So, And we've been talking about tax already um, and the role of aid in tax systems. But I think a much bigger and much more important thing that... Um, rich countries could do to help developing countries reform their tax systems is to reform their own tax systems, to reform the kind of global rules on tax that allow companies to underreport the profits that they're making in developing countries and so reduce the um, the amount of income which developing country governments could potentially have to raise tax on. So I think, you know, I think, and, you know, as you said, trade is important. I think perhaps we need to come back as well to some of the um, issues around intellectual property that we were all discussing, you know, at the time of the last round of trade talks 10, 15 years ago, and the role of knowledge and sort of sharing knowledge fairly around the world is just becoming more and more important as the, the role of knowledge in growth and in, you know, and in sort of people's own individual incomes is growing. Um, I suppose we, we we probably ought to think about how climate negotiations, climate finance, adaptation, these kind of things fit into the uh, the future looking forward as well. Obviously, climate finance is going to be uh, look substantial. It will probably go to the low income countries where most of the poor don't live. Um, that's one set of issues. But there's also a um, a set of issues around uh, adaptation and 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 people all around the world, particularly poor people. Uh, uh, dealing with the impacts of climate change uh, and how the international community might support or work work with middle-income country governments on these kind of things. And what about more explicitly trying to address issues of inequality through, for example, um, uh, some creating stronger international obligations? Um, do you think that's a uh, do you think that's on the cards? And do you think that is likely to be an effective uh, way of, of um, well, tackling you... inequality? I mean, there's, I guess there's, there's two things that, that spring to mind. The first is, um, I mean, the, the region of the world where inequality has has been substantially reduced uh, over the last 10, 15 years, of course, in Latin America. And that was largely due to, um, <clears throat> you know, indigenous political, social movements, 
Um, I suspect aid had very little to do with that at all. But international norms probably helped a lot. I mean, I know a friend in Malawi said, you know, there's no chance of, of getting any of these uh, rights that Malawi is, is signed up to. But it creates an advocacy tool for sort of uh, making claims to them. Uh, and obviously under the, the international uh, uh, idea of progressive realisation, that it, it gives advocates uh, something to to advocate with. Um, I'm just struck with the Latin American example because um, there's there's a, a situation where uh, fundamentally you're talking about some major political shifts over the last 20 years. I mean, perhaps we're seeing the same thing in India at the moment. I mean, uh, poverty and inequality became election issues about seven or eight years ago. And since then, there's a, a series of rights that have been agreed uh, by the Indian government. And although you know those, those rights aren't uh, available to, to everyone yet, there's certainly some major political change. And Indonesia, too, you have a very vibrant civil society. Um, and I think some, some uh, real political change from within. Uh, these things take time. I don't know quite uh, in, in countries, other countries, uh, the situation. Maybe Claire can add. I mean, I think all that is, you know, all those examples are, are quite, you know, inspiring ones. And they all do. But they, I think what they all show is, again, how central national level action is to this. And kind of, you know, all of them in different ways question whether international action is you know, is really as important as we think it is. I think it would be quite hard to imagine how one could have a sort of international norm on inequality. But I do think, you know, we're going to need to think in the next, as we start to think about how to take the international poverty agenda forward after 2015, I think what's going to be very clear is that unless you think about inequality within countries, you're not going to be able to end poverty. So I think there's a very strong (coughs) instrumental case for the international community sort of thinking harder about inequality as a as a tool you know reducing inequality as a tool to end poverty rather than necessarily having some sort of global norm and, uh, on inequality i think i think i'm perhaps slightly more skeptical than andy about the um the value of sort of international human rights law and obligations to catalyze change but uh, perhaps that's another issue but but just to, i mean just to add to that this is not a just a question of a so researchers and advocates, you had the, the managing director of the IMF making a speech about inequality. You have Martin Revalian, head of research at the World Bank, uh, writing a series of uh, works on inequality and, and how it slows down poverty reduction. You also have UNICEF and UNDP putting out publications before the MDG summit saying equity is the kind of the next thing. We're leaving all the hard work uh, uh, to, uh, to after 2015. We ought to start thinking about the poorest 20% or so, or maybe poorest 40% now. So it's kind of, in a way, it's, I guess, inequality uh, re-emerges every 10 or 15 years or so in, in development policy debates. And it seems to be uh, uh, on the upswing at the moment. You've been listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Barder, and my guests today have been Andy Sumner from the Institute for Development Studies and Claire Malamed from Overseas Development Institute. Andy, Claire, thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you.